And what we have been talking about is be God's child. Being God's child is amazing. He, I don't know about you guys, but in our study of Matthew, Sermon on the Mount is probably my favorite still, but chapter 18 is probably my second favorite. I think 18 is awesome because it's just, to me, it's just answers so many questions for me. And I hope it answers a lot of questions for you. And also, I think it gives me a sense of confidence, a sense of like, wow, I'm so glad that I'm God's child in the sense of what we're going to look at today. I mean, he's not harsh. He's not mean. (laughs) He's so loving. He's so gentle. And he's so patient with his children. I'm glad I'm God's child. I mean, this is so awesome. So let's go to the review right away then, Stuart. And then um, review, I put... Four things, no, five things about being a child of God. The reason why I put four things is because I had four steps or four points from last week, but I added one other, so I changed it from four to five. And, the, and that's the first one. Just every, almost every slide last week said being a child of God is great, basically. And I think that's just awesome. Let's just take that in. Being a child of God is great. It's so cool to know that we are child's children, family, that we belong to him. He's our father, our heavenly father. And, and we just need to embrace how awesome that is because we're, we're not spiritual orphans. You know, we don't, we're not out just to fend for ourselves spiritually. We don't have to look out for ourselves spiritually. We've got a father who can care for us, who does care for us and protects us and defends us and nurtures us and guides us and just everything a father should do to us in, you know, the more kind of earthly way. He does it in a spiritual way, but also cares for us in the earthly way as well, which is kind of cool. It, it does. It traverses the physical even. Oh, how awesome is it? So that's chapter 18 summed up. Point number two, a child of God is repentant. He talked about that you need to be like this child. Um, and, and the way we looked at that last week is qualitatively changed. Repentance, now different. And that's what we saw in verses one through three. And then we see that great children of God serve other children of God. I, I, I kind of was going off last time about how you can't just say I'm a servant of God in any abstract sense. I serve God in my brain. You know, you can't just stay there. In order to serve God in reality, you need to do something that's tangible. So you can't just serve God in the abstract way, you know, in your mind. You have to do something that's tangible, that's real. And, and Jesus taught us last week that we serve God by serving other Christians, by serving other children of God. And that's verse four. Fourth, fourth, fourth point, God cares for his children, all of them, especially when they are struggling. And that's kind of what we're going to get into this morning. Sometimes God's children struggle. And that's just what we looked at in verses five through seven. Um, the fact is Satan tries to trip God's children up. He tries to trip us up, guys. He wants, to, he wants to knock us out of the race. He wants to take us down. He wants us to lose heart and lose our faith in him, our hope in him. 
So we need to be on guard. And so when someone walks away from God, we call this an apostasy. We talked about that last week. Not last week, two weeks ago, three weeks ago. So it has been a while since we've done this. God still loves them. And this is the thing I think it's important for us as Christians, as a church, to put this into our mind. Because we will deal with situations where people will walk away from God. They will have this thing called apostasy. They will turn away from God in disobedience. What's hard for us probably as humans to remember is God actually still loves these people. And he wants to restore them. And that brings us to where we are today in our first lesson, our first illustration. I've got two illustrations to um, to begin with, which illuminates this fact. And the first one is, is a different portion of scripture. It's in Luke 15, 11 to 32. And I'm just going to read it. Now think about this. See what Jesus is talking about here with this father in his relationship with the son. Okay? This explains, I think, what we're seeing in Matthew 18. Let's look at this together. It says this, and this is Jesus speaking here. There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, give, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Most commentaries would conclude that this is, uh, um, this is disrespectful. He's basically saying, I, I, want, I know you're still alive, but I want my inheritance. I can't wait for you to die, Dad. So give us the money so I can go and play. So it is disrespectful. So we see here a disobedient son walking away from his father. And, and leaving the family and taking his inheritance early, which is shameful. It goes on to say, not long after, the younger son got together all that he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country, who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longs to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, and sometimes that's kind of what has to happen, come to their senses. He says, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? How good is his father? What's he doing playing a fool? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him. So here we have a repentant. Here we have a changed or a one who's gone astray. We might use that term again, apostasy. But he's come back. He's, he sees the errors. Like this, is, this doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense. Why would I leave my father and all that he's given me? Even his servants have spare bits of food to share. But I have nothing. So he says, I'm going to say to my father, he says, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. And on we go. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him. Now look at his father's response. This is the mind of God. This is Jesus speaking here, talking about how God is. Now we can argue whether or not who he's specifically talking about, you know, as far as the culture or ethnicity, but the reality is this is the heart of God for his people. That's the bottom line. This is the hot heart of God for his people. This person turned his back against his father, left him shameful, squandered, unwise, just stupid. He's changed. He repents. He wants to come back to his father for mercy. And look at the reaction. Look at the attitude of the father. While the boy was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. 
He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servant, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast. Let's party. Let's celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. So there's two variables. We have the father in his attitude. We have the son in his repentance. You have his fallenness and his repentance. But here's a third variable. And this is the variable we want to watch out for ourselves. And we're going to talk about this quite a bit this morning. And that's this older brother, or the older son. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. This is, this is the one who's always been there. The self-righteous one, if you will. <laughs> when he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. Now, I'd be a little bit sad for not being invited to the party. <laughs> that's one thing I'd be offended. I wasn't part of the party. But that's not why he's angry. He's angry for some other self-righteous reason. So he called one of the servants and asked, what's going on? Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry. Why? Because he wasn't invited to the party. And he refused to go in. Why? Because he wasn't invited to the party. No. For a completely different reason. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him? My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we have to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So we have three different things to chew on there, you know? And, and, and I think this really informs what we're going to be talking about today in Matthew 18. You have those who've walked away, God's love for them, and our response. Are we going to be self-righteous like the older brother, or are we going to be more like the heart of the father? And that really is the question. And that's a hard question to answer because I struggle with Thoughts, hey God, I've served you for a long time. And, and yet, I feel like, <laughs> what's going on here? You know, you got people coming and going and playing stupid games. I don't play stupid games. But then again, that's also a lie. Because we all play stupid games, really, don't we? But still, it's just the heart of the attitude. We want to have the heart of the Father. We need to recognize the Father is in charge. And he has the right to, to celebrate. He has a right to love. He has the right to give his inheritance the way he wants to. And the older son, call him jealous, call him self-righteous, call him whatever you want. We don't want to be that. That's not the heart of the father. So, yes. Here's a second illustration. Now, this, is, this illustration is connected to the other one in Luke. That's why I used them both. Because it's not like I just jumped out in left field and said these are kind of similar. But Jesus connects them in Luke. But here in Matthew 18, Jesus talks about another illustration. The wandering sheep. Okay? And again, this is what Jesus says. What do you think? If a man owns a hundred sheep and one of them wanders away, will he not leave the ninety-nine on the hills and go to look for the one that wandered off? 
Let me just ask him a bit of a rhetorical question. What would you do if you had 100 sheep but one wandered off? Would you not go and find it? And if he finds it, truly I tell you, he is happier about the one sheep than the 99 that did not wander off. And I want to talk about that because <clears throat> it seems silly. Why would he be happier about the one that ran off that he collected? What, what, what does that mean? And the way that I make sense of this, first of all, the word happier is, is kairo, to rejoice, to be glad. And the reason why I think he's saying this in conjunction to this rejoicing, is this gladness, is that the other ones don't, well, there's no present state of danger. They're safe. But he's concerned because the one was off. And he was concerned about losing the one. So he was happy to have redeemed it. So now he's safe. That's what he means by happier. Not that he doesn't appreciate the other ones. He's just happy because he redeemed the one that was lost. And here's how I put it down here in my own words. This single sheep is the object of his immediate attention. Okay, the way I look at this is say like, um, say like something happens at my house, okay? And it gets my attention, you know, a leaky roof or whatever. And I'm like, ah, it gets my attention. I think about it. Now, there's a lot of things that can go wrong. A lot of things that can go wrong. <laughs> but the one thing has my attention. And then I go out and I get it fixed. And now I'm happier I got that fixed. You see the difference? That's what's going on here. It's, it's not, anything can go wrong, but this has his attention. This sheep has his attention. It's not that the others are not equally important to him. It is that this one has caused immediate concern. And now the problem solved. And he's happy. Hey, problem solved. Yeah, does that make sense? Again, we're looking at the heart of the father towards people. So therefore, discipline. Correction, restoration, these things matter to the Father. And there's three steps towards restoration that we as a church need to learn together. Okay? Because we want to have the heart of the Father, not the heart of the older son in the prodigal story, right? The self-righteous one. The judgmental one. The harsh one. So there's three steps towards restoration. If someone is in sin. Well, this is what he says in Matthew 18, 5. Or 15, rather. If a brother or sister sins, now, other translations might say sins against you. So let's just make it real simple and say, if you're concerned about someone, because they seem to be falling in sin. Now, brother or sister, this does refer to a fellow disciple. Okay, so these are people who consider themselves Christians. People that you're concerned with because you have fellowship with them. You have a bond, a spiritual bond with them, but yet they're falling into sin. What do you do? What's a sin? A sin, also um, defined here. Um, harmateo, to sin, to miss the mark. One who keeps missing the mark in his relationship to God. So there's something to cause concern. It may be intentional, it may be unintentional, but they but they're keep missing the mark, they're, and you're concerned. What do we do? What do you do? If your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault. Just between the two of you. It's just the two of them. Simple. In fact, I hate to say that usually this solves the problem 90% of the time. Hey, listen, I need to talk to you about something. I found in my ex experiences that this is it. This is all you need to do, usually. Just, hey, can we talk about something? And it usually solves the problem right away. It's a no-brainer. And if they listen to you, you have won them over. But there is the times in which there might be some stubbornness. Or maybe... They th it might be said that we're, you're seeing things the wrong way. Then you need to get other independent people who 
can help clarify, to help justify the, the cause for concern. And that's where you have step two. Take a friend or two with you. And again, the motive here is to restore. It's the heart of a father that loves to bring back. It isn't to point out, I believe differently than you do. I see things differently than you do, and you need to believe what I believe and see what I see. It has to do with, I'm concerned about your spiritual well-being. I'm concerned about you, and I want to help you. So if, again, they don't listen, you need to go back. But here, I like what he says, if they do listen, you want them over, and that's great. But they don't listen, then you need to take another step. And that's to take a couple others. And again, even with the teenagers, sometimes when they come up to us, they say, oh, you know, somebody's, you know, looking at me wrong or whatever. Oh, I don't like how they're, oh, they, they, whatever. And I'm like, did you go talk to them about it? No. Then go talk to them. And usually I don't hear anything about it ever again. But if, if, if it come to it, I would say, well, has anybody else seen this behavior? Are you just by yourself? Is it just you that sees the problem? Or are there others? What does such and such say? What does Danny say? What does Robert say? I mean, independent people. Uh, is it just you that's seeing this? Or are there others that's seeing this as well? Because if that's the case, then you can go to step two. If they don't listen, then take one or two others along. So that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. Again, these are witnesses. Yeah, we, we're seeing the same thing. You know, we're concerned about this. And of course, in love. Witnesses. This may be a direct reference, by the way, to Deuteronomy 19.15. The... the the law which discusses the importance of having um, a witness of two or more. So there's a third step. If you can move on, Stuart, please. The, th the third step is this. So first, you just go one-on-one. -on -one. Doesn't work, get a couple other independent witnesses to come to try to sh you know, explain what's going with the, with the problem, the concerns. Third step, if there's a problem and it's still not being resolved, you need to go to your church. That's what we're here for. You're not alone. You're not alone. You have a church you belong to. Appreciate it and value it. Seek help from the local church. Matthew 18, 17, 20 says this. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. The church, ecclesia, broadly speaking, is a gathering of citizens called out from their homes into some public place, an assembly. Specific to Christianity, a company of Christian or of those who, hoping for eternal salvation through Jesus Christ, observe their own religious rites, hold their own religious meetings, and manage their own affairs according to the regulations prescribed for by the body for order's sake. This is where we get the word, if you are a Bible college student, ecclesiology, which is a study of the organized church throughout history. So this is what he's talking about. He's talking about local church. People, elders, congregation, members getting together, working out issues. Again, you can't work out these issues by yourself in an abstract way. You need help. You need to go to yourself to solve problems. That doesn't help. You need to bring someone along with you. That doesn't help. You rely on what God has given you with a body of believers. And if they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan. We've talked about the word pagan before, or a tax collector. Tax collector... It's just a person who was hated back then. You know, they're, oh, they're, they're seen as traitors. Traitors against the people because they, they oh, land them and steal, take their money and give it to the dodgy emperor, you know, the whatever. But pagan, I want to talk about that again, you know, because the word pagan, we've seen it before. Um, ethnikos, 
the, which is I, the best way I would define it, and this is my own personal definition, is the way of the people. It's just common folk, the way of the people. And it's from the word ethnos. You know, does that sound familiar, the word ethnos? That's where we get the word ethnic from. Folk people, a tribe, nation, people, group. It is assumed here that Jesus is talking about a person who does not know God, okay? So it's just the way of people. It's just a common way of people. When however they worship and however they do the things they do. But usually without being special, God's people. So if somebody doesn't listen, they refuse, they're still in sin, do you kick them out of church? Maybe. I'm not seeing that here, though. It may be a desperate situation. Paul did say to the church in Corinth that he had to cast a fellow out who was sleeping with his dad's wife. And he said, you have to send him away because that's the only way that problem is going to be solved. So you don't have to send someone and say, please don't come back to church unless it's destructive. But treat them like you would if any random person came through the front door, if you will. Hey, I don't know if you know God or not, but we're going to love you like we would if we just met you that day and you didn't know God. Kind of a hard thing to do, isn't it? Of course, but if somebody came through the door and they were being disruptive, I would still ask them to leave. See, see what I'm saying? It has nothing to do with, I don't like what you're doing, so go away. It's like if you're being disruptive and you're causing problems, you're going to have to go no matter who you are. But if you come and you're caught up in sin, then we're going to treat you, we're going to, we're going to give you the gospel, basically. And we're going to try to basically win you over to Jesus like you would if you didn't know God, you know? And again, this is kind of the last kind of desperate measure, which I would say hopefully would rather never have to get to. Hopefully the first step is all you need. Again, he goes on to say, truly I tell you that if two, oh, I missed part. Truly I tell you, whatever you bind on earth, we bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth, we loose in heaven. He already said this to Peter earlier about the church in general. And we talked about like the church will be built upon the principle of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Remember we talked about that rock in which the church will be built upon. Okay, and he invited Peter to be a, a, a part of that. <laughs> Petros, little rock, part of that, you know. And he says, this principle that Peter declared that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, the Son of God, that's the core, core, that's the foundation of the church. That's what's going to be built upon. And he used that term church, and he says, now, whatever happens with the church in this regard, it, it's, it's going to be like this binding and loosening, which I've defined down here. Rightly describing the kingdom. So what the church does Basically, they have the authority of God behind them. God says, yes, this is my church. And that's kind of scary and also kind of cool to think that God's got our back. If we're filled with the Holy Spirit, you know, the church, the things that we do, God's got our back. Whatever you bind on earth, we bound in heaven. Whatever we loose on earth, we loose in heaven. Rightly describing the kingdom of God. And bear in mind, we're also assuming here, though, that we're talking about people who are surrendered to God and can do right things that rightly describe the kingdom of God on earth. In, again, 1619, Jesus speaks to the Messiah professing church in general. There, here, he's dealing with particular local church groups. So that I kind of like. And he goes on to say, again, truly, I tell you that if two of you on earth agree about anything they ask for, and looking at its own context, it will be done for them by the by Father in heaven. For where two or three Gather my name, there I am with you. And when I see this, that's why I kind of put the little, that's my little comment next to it. God blesses small churches too. 
where two or three are gathered. The thing is, I kind of believe personally that in these end times, that many will walk away from the faith, and it'll be an unfortunate thing, but I still believe that God's gonna do some really amazing things, but he might use small gatherings of churches. He's not gonna use big mega churches anymore. I, I don't know, I, I, that's my personal opinion. You can disagree with me, but I think in these last times, uh, Jesus talked about in the end times, uh, the love of many will grow cold. What does that mean? I think that means that commercialism, the appeal of Christianity as far as a marketing ploy will lose its interest. And what's gonna happen is you're gonna have people who are genuine about the meaning of Christianity and the meaning of the gospel. And it's gonna take more effort for those to come to church and be active participant in local churches. So I think small churches are great. Hey, Cornerstone's great church. It's the best church in the world. You belong to the best church in the world. How happy are you about that? Who cares if, hey, this is where two or three are gathered. One, two, three, four, five, seven. There's at least 50 people in this room. We're all right. Yeah, my mess a bit odd, I know. Next slide, please. So we need to take church discipline seriously. Okay, here's another illustration. And we're gonna end with this illustration. And we'll end the chapter, like I promised. Matthew 18, 21 to 35. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? Now, already, all that we've looked at, all that we've talked about, this almost seems like a stupid question, doesn't it? You know? Okay, yeah, I understand forgiving. You know, the prodigal son, the sheep, the people who walk away and whatever. But there's got to be a time where we can, you know, throw them off a cliff or something, right? <laughs> there's, there's a time where we can proper get rid of them, right? Well, let's see what Jesus' answer is. Jesus' answer, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. Or sometimes it's in seven times seven. Okay, now listen. The way I look at this is kind of like how the East Coast of America is. They, 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 that term, I say it a lot of times, I love it. Forget about it. I think that's what Jesus is basically saying. Forget about it. You just keep forgiving. You, your job is to forgive and to restore and do what you can to restore someone. When it comes to the final judgment, let God deal with that, right? No throwing people off a cliff. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with servants. Here's the story. He's going to illustrate it. As he began the settlement, a man who owned him 10,000 bags of gold, so 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children, all that they had be sold to repay the debt. So a man comes to a master, okay, that's Lord or whatever, and he owes him 10,000 bags of gold, but he's unable to pay the debt. So what, what, what has to happen? Well, according to this local law, I guess, he, would, he and his children have to be sold into slavery to pay the debt. So the servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him, canceled all the debt, and let him go. That's awesome. Do you feel good about him? Well, I believe in this illustration. This is Peter. Peter has experienced this. The great bag of debt that he owed to Jesus was forgiven him. And right now Jesus is saying, consider the great debt that you haven't forgiven. Okay, you, real, reality is this man probably couldn't pay back that money ever. So that's why the master said, just forget about it. Just forget about it. Just, I'll, I'll, I'll clear the charges. But how should Peter or me or you or our disciples treat other disciples? who have the same 
problem. Well, let's go on. But when the servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins. So not so much. Very few in comparison. He found one of his fellow servants who owed him, oh, I already said that. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. Next slide. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, be patient with me and I'll pay it back. Again, more likely, you know what I'm saying? More likely he'll pay that back. You know what I'm saying? The first servant paying back, what, a thousand gold is very unlikely. Paying back just a few silver, that's more likely. So he should kind of say, okay, here, on you go. Have, you give him a chance. But what was his response instead? Guys, look very carefully. But he refused. Is his heart the heart of God, the Father? Or is his heart like the other son who was jealous and self-righteous and condemning? He refused. This is not the way. This is not how God's kingdom operates. That's what I put down here. This is not how God's kingdom operates. Instead, he went off and he had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged and went and told their master everything that had happened. You see, they see the hypocrisy. They see the, the self-righteousness. They see the, 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 the harm, the damn. This is not in keeping with the master. The master called the servant in and said, you wicked Servant, again, wicked. We've talked about that before. It's full of labor and hardships and toil. <coughs> and again, it's simply not how God's kingdom operates. He said, I've canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all that he owed. So that debt that he owed before, that was cleared, that huge debt he couldn't pay, now he has to spend his life in jail trying to pay that debt back. This is how my Heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. Pretty harsh Conclusion there, isn't it? I don't want to be <laughs> in, in, that, in the shoes of this fella. I, I, mean, I don't want to speculate. I don't want to read into it. And I don't want to conclude with that because I think it's dark enough on its own. I don't want to be that fella. Bottom line, I want to practice the heart of the father and not the heart of this fella who's, who's judgmental, condemning, self-righteous, whatever. Last slide is conclusion. So if you bear with me for the next two, three minutes... We will conclude properly. So this is the conclusion for the entire chapter as we've seen it in the last several weeks. Being God's child is a great thing. Like a child, we need a fresh start in life, yeah? No longer our ways, but now God's way. Humbly serving God's other children is the way to go. That's what we kind of want to do. And I do see that in a lot of us, which I love about Cornerstone is Cornerstone is a very servant-minded church, and that's awesome. I think we all see that it's important to serve each other, and, that's, and there's a great joy, there's a, great, there's a greatness to it. I think we see that, and that's awesome. And I want to encourage you guys and keep doing that. However, the enemy wants to take you guys out. He wants to take us all out. The enemy is anti or against all that Christ is for. Do all that you can to avoid walking away from God. 
When others fall into the trap of the enemy, be careful that you too do not fall as well. Rather, care for those who have tripped up, if it is possible. Again, we do recognize that maybe they just don't want, you know, like you said, to treat them like pagans, treat them like someone who doesn't know God. We understand that it may not be possible always to win a soul back. But we should try as hard as we can to care for them. God loves his sheep. And he will go after them. And he will rejoice. He will be happy. He will be celebrating at their return. So when a brother or sister trips up, do these three things. Number one, go to them. Just do it. Go to them. You just go. Don't come talk to me. Don't talk to anybody else. Just go. Talk to them. And that'll probably be all that needs to happen. But number two, if that doesn't work, take another disciple with you. If that still doesn't work, number three, go to your local church. Come to Cornerstone. Talk to us here and seek help. And we'll see if we, we can do about this situation. But ultimately, forgiveness is the way. Forgive like you have been forgiven. And think about how much you've been forgiven. Yeah? Yeah? 